According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures, and join me, if you would, in Proverbs 18. We get our first look at Proverbs 18 this morning. Now, uh, Doug and James can't say anything because I already gave the secret away. So everybody else can, uh, can try to answer do you know what today is? The significance of the last Wednesday in, uh, in August. Anyone? Nine years ago was our first uh, service ever in this building. Nine years ago. It was the last, the last Wednesday. We started on a Wednesday morning. Had a Wednesday morning and Wednesday evening before we even had our first Sunday in the building. And it was, uh, it was the 25th. Back in 2010, it was the 25th. It was a Wednesday and so here we are on our ninth anniversary, and uh, it wasn't Proverbs back then, of course, it was Life of Christ, and we haven't been in Proverbs nine years, have we? No, okay, <laughs> it just seems like it. All right, well, Proverbs 18, he who separates himself seeks his own desire, he quarrels against all sound wisdom. A fool does not delight in understanding, but only in revealing his own mind. When a wicked man comes, contempt also comes, and with dishonor comes scorn. These verses don't seem too happy, do they? In fact, nine verses in a row, the opening nine verses of this chapter are going to outline uh, social dysfunction. They're going to outline what happens with people that aren't living God's wisdom. And when you have a a whole bunch of them in your society, your society pays a price. And uh, the consequences are personally destructive and uh, societally uh, destructive to the community. So on that happy note, let's start with a word of prayer and ask uh, for our Lord's blessings upon our time together. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do come before you this morning thankful for grace and truth and rejoicing that we're saved by grace and we get to walk in the truth. Father, it's, uh, it's a joy to be saved and to be your child and to uh, run with endurance the race that's set before us. Father, we delight in the things of wisdom, and uh, part of that means we have to study the, uh, the consequences of what happens when we leave your wisdom. So, Father, we ask for your blessing on our time, that you would open the eyes of our understanding, that we would be uh, properly admonished and uh, humble, as these things can be very applicable to each one of us. And also, uh, Father, we have friends and family members, loved ones, that uh, could be described by some of these early verses as well, Father. So we're not judging them. We, uh, we love them. We would love to see them back under teaching and, uh, and walk in the path of wisdom. So uh, use these, uh, these kind of classes, Father, to motivate our sacrificial love and our intercessory prayer and all that you would uh, design these messages for. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Proverbs 18. And, and it, it's hard to actually put a label on any particular one of these chapters in Proverbs. I think uh, the Proverbs aren't organized or structured that way. It's not like Philippians or Colossians where you can kind of give a, a, a chapter heading or memorize a, a title for a particular chapter, as it were. Uh, in reading from the New American Standard Bible here, uh, all these pericope headings are identical. And uh, they're all identical going way back to, I think, chapter 10. Um, 
Where's the first one of these? Yeah, the contrast of the righteous and the wicked. And that's my, that's my chapter heading for every chapter since chapter 10. And it is more of the same. And so chapter 18 is more of the same. And, and we're not going to actually get variety until chapter 19, uh, where we have life and conduct. And then we get a couple chapters with that. So anyway, it's, uh, it, it is different. And I've admitted that, uh, Proverbs is different. It's not like we're studying a Pauline book and we can exegete it and we can come up with things. Um, in any event, we'll, uh, see what we have here. This chapter does introduce, um, and, and, and Unlike a lot of other chapters where you struggle to find a theme over even three or four verses, uh, here we have a theme that's stretched over nine verses. And uh, really it's the first nine verses. Uh, wrong outline. Let me get the right one up here. I forgot to change that. From the chapter 17 shortcut to the chapter 18 shortcut. Stand by. Unless you want to do chapter 17 all over again. It took us a while. There we go. Chapter 18 begins with nine verses of social dysfunction. Nine verses of social dysfunction. And uh, you can spell dysfunction with a D-I or a D-Y. I chose the D-Y spelling. Dysfunction. All right? And, and really, uh, this kind of addresses the whole segment from chapter 10 to chapter 24. And, and as we introduced it so long ago, the first nine chapters are parental wisdom. The first nine chapters are a mom and a dad pouring out their heart to their son, wanting him to live the Word of God, wanting him to grow and to step forth in his own generation as not only a believer, but a believer that's intimate with the Lord and, and walking in wisdom. And that's what those nine chapters are, with parents pouring themselves out. The big change happens then in chapter 10 and follows through the 24th chapter, whereby now the setting is not so much parents urging their children, but an adult son, an adult man that stands before the Lord. And so uh, I've titled this segment, Personal and Public Wisdom, because each believer in their own generation has to personally stand before the Lord and live their life as unto the Lord. And they are personally accountable for uh, for their choices and for, for uh, how they're living and, and all the rest. And they answer to the Lord for their personal choices in their personal life. Now beyond that then comes the aggregate, comes the combined, uh, the population of everybody living personally, either right or wrong, is going to have an impact in public life. And so that, that, that connection between your personal life and your public life the Bible uh, illustrates that they're the same. That as you live your personal life, you will then impact uh, the public. You will impact your, your neighborhood. You will impact your city, your nation, for example. And so um, it, it seems if, if there are politicians that, like Clinton, you know, uh, politicians that get in trouble, they get exposed for their sins and whatnot. Uh, sometimes a defense gets made that, well, that's just his personal life. That's just his personal life. It doesn't affect, he's still a great president. He still, you know, it doesn't affect his public duties. It doesn't affect his public, uh, his public life at all. And so that, that bifurcation, that, 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 that split between personal life and public life, while it might be 
a useful uh, defense. I don't think it is. But while some people might think it's useful to distinguish between personal life and public life, uh, the Bible does not. The Bible really relates them. And as you are, as you think in your heart, so you are. As you, as you are yourself, that's how you impact your community, either as salt and light or not, right? It's blessing by association or it's cursing by association. And so these are the principles as we have them in the Word of God. And by the way, it's not just public life. Well, public life includes not just the politics of things, for holders of public office, but it also includes uh, business dealings. It also includes uh, how you are viewed uh, by your peers in the business community, and and uh, and so forth. And so, and and it used to be not long ago that uh, you know a man that was not faithful in his marriage, he would not be entrusted with a business. He would not be entrusted. He would be removed by uh, by a board of directors, and they would say, "Well, why would we trust him?" to run our business if he would betray his wife, if he would betray his family. He's not a man of integrity. And we don't want a we don't want a business leader like that because of his personal life demonstrates a lack of character. And and really that's that's biblical. That, that reflects what the Word of God says in terms of your character, your integrity, how wisdom shapes your thinking, how wisdom shapes your life. And so this chapter really now shows, I think, to the we've seen other examples of this, but for nine verses of social dysfunction, um, the one that's not as clear is verse four. The words of a man's mouth are deep waters. Uh, the fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. And I think when we look at that, um, it, it can be viewed positively, but it's actually not because of where it's located in this in this setting. Verse five: to show partiality to the wicked is not good nor to thrust aside the righteous in judgment. That's clearly a negative verse that we've talked about before, where you're perverting justice and when you're using the, the politics to, to harm your adversaries. Uh, verse 6, a fool's lips bring strife and his mouth calls for blows. Verse 7, a fool's mouth is his ruin and his lips are the snare of his soul. So you notice uh, five, six, and seven follow right along with one, two, and three. They're all negative, and and the the one verse that gets debated is verse four. And I think that the debate gets solved when you see where it's located, kind of like a, an egg in a nest. Uh, it's 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 not the it's not the ex- exception to the rule. It also is a negative verse that the deep waters is uh, is problematic in this uh, sense, as opposed to a bubbling brook. Uh, in that uh, in that regard, so we'll deal with that when we get to verse four. Verse eight: the words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels. Ooh, that sounds tasty. Well, it's like junk food, though, and uh, you may enjoy it at the time, but long term you can't live on it. And uh, if that's all you eat, then uh, that's not a healthy life. The words of a whisperer are like dainty morsels; they go down into the innermost parts of the body. And if you have a culture that's a gossip culture, um, like ours has become, I mean, social media culture is, hey, let's talk about ourselves, let's talk about everybody. Uh, well, wait a minute. If we are talking about the things that are not proper to mention, then what are we really doing? We are actually accelerating the spread of, of gossip and slander and, and other sins of the tongue uh, on an industrial scale. And then uh, verse 9, he also who is slack in his work is brother to him who destroys. And so the ninth and final 
of the negative verses here. Really, verses 1 through 9 are not pleasant to consider. And they do represent what happens when you have so many people that are each of them individually, personally, not living God's wisdom. Well, then collectively, culturally, it certainly impacts uh, our nation. And that's going to be clear as well. Thankfully, we get to verse 10 and we get positive verses in this chapter. There are several good ones. Uh, but the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and is safe. And so that's a blessing. We can appreciate that. There's also, um, of course, the uh, friend that sticketh closer than a brother at the end of the chapter. That's pretty popular for a lot of folks. And I like verse 22 as well. I use it in most of my wedding services. Uh, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so uh, it's, it's, we have to start with nine pretty negative verses, but if we get through that, then uh, we've got some good stuff coming up by uh, the end of the chapter. All right. So back to the top then. Let's deal with social dysfunction. We start with the, uh, the rebel, the, the guy that wants to go it alone, the guy that won't fit in. And he separates himself from a community of wisdom. He separates himself from, uh, from a lot of things. Uh, it, it is he who separates himself. And we can view it spiritually, we can view it societally. You know, someone that's going to be, that's going to rock the boat, that's going to leave the community and cause issues. Well, what's driving that? Why won't he fit into the community? And if it's a faith community, as Israel was, a faith community, a theocracy is before the Lord, then we have, we, we have those issues simultaneously. Okay? Separating yourself from the community of faith. If you separate yourself from God's wisdom and you separate yourself from a community that's pursuing God's wisdom, that will carry personal and public consequences. Separating yourself from the community of faith and wisdom carries personal and public consequences. And so we have the he who here, he who separates himself. And really he's seeking his own appetite, he's seeking his own desire, seeking his own uh, tasty morsels. Uh, As Philippians puts it, uh, his God is his belly. And that's the warning that Paul issues to the Philippian believers that there are many uh, who walk that are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose God is their appetite, whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. And uh, so we could view this as really the Old Testament foundation for Philippians uh, in that, uh, Philippians 3 in the warning that's there. But the idea of separation, why? When God has provided, when God has provided the community and, and, and we're going to approach this in, in every realm of, of uh, divine establishment as well as spiritual life. But if you think about it, God has created these communities for our protection, for our blessing, for our growth, for our, our nurturing. And so we can think about our local church in this context. This is our community. The body of Christ is a community. And, and this is where we should function. This is where we should uh, serve one another and love one another and fit in. Um, obviously there's personality issues that happen and there's fights and there's, there's struggle. But that's because we're, we're full of people, okay? And people are people. 
And, uh, you know, if you, if you find the perfect church somewhere, then the minute you walk in, you just ruined it because, <laughs> uh, you know, thanks for showing up. But the fact is, we're all people. And there are issues. But the Bible, wisdom teaches us how to work through those issues. Wisdom teaches us how to rise above those issues because there's the greater glory of serving Jesus Christ. And there's the greater blessings of being eternally focused, not just temporally focused here on earth. But similar things as well in nations. Similar things as well in family. Similar things as well in marriage. God designed all of these institutions to be corporate bodies of people with with, uh, wisdom that allows us to get along, to cooperate, to thrive. In fact, uh, the the, the community will do better uh, because of the community. So separation is not a good thing. There's a reason why separation is death. That's the reason why the, 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 the concept that underlies all death is separation. When your soul is separated from your body, that's physical death. All right? We've got other, we've got spiritual death. When you're carnal, when you're out of fellowship, you have operational death. There's, uh, death is always a separation. You could have a friendship death. Okay? And so that, that language is there for a reason. And that's why it's such a serious issue. That's why when we're under a separation mandate, What's the one thing we're supposed to separate from? Evil. evil. That's right. We're supposed to separate from evil. And, and that's, again, it's, it's within, yeah, we're going to give, Shirley gets a gold star this morning. There's a, but the reason that imperative is there is because I think fundamentally because that, that principle of separation and death is already in effect, that, that, that evil, that sin, that darkness you're separating from is a death. And you've got to, you, can't, uh, you can't be connected with that, otherwise you experience the death. You get pulled into the carnality. You get pulled into the darkness. So even when we separate for the right reasons in obeying the Lord, there's still that element of death that, that we think of as, uh, as we're applying the Word of God. But thinking about separating from families, uh, separating from um, uh, you know, divorce and separating a, a marriage or um, other things where you're separating out of the will of God and the destruction that happens in that consequence when God has designed these things to be unifying as, 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 as believers function in wisdom together for the greater good of the community. All right, now the verb is parad and the adjective is parad and so, um, or the noun rather, and so uh, there's different Strong's numbers for each of these. I'm only going to focus on uh, the verb, I think, as far as that goes. But 6504 is the verb. That's uh, the Strong's number. It's used 26 times in the Old Testament. And we'll see most of them. We'll see a lot of them. And they're well known to, to each one of us, I think, most of them anyway. But parad, P-A-R-A-D. And really, this is the verb where and it might not be as intuitive because it's a hard P instead of a F, PH sound, but uh, Pharisees, okay? The idea of the Pharisees, they viewed themselves as the set-apart ones. They viewed themselves as the separatists, and they really were. They were set apart, and in their holiness, in their personal, uh, you know, they, they, they viewed themselves as set-apart. They were above and beyond. They were better than other Jews. They were better than 
And that was kind of the mindset beyond. And so they were uh, initially, they, uh, they weren't as, as arrogant early as they were later, but initially they viewed themselves as, say, as being the real serious Bible students, being the real devout uh, uh, livers of the Word. They were living the Word of God, not just hearing the Word of God. Uh, they were really set apart in a positive way as people that weren't fooling around. They were serious about doctrine. They were serious about living out their faith. And so with the right kind of start, of course it got worse by the time of Jesus in his lifetime. They were so set apart, they were so holier than thou, and they were so arrogant about their uh, being better than everybody else that that impacted everything else. That their their wisdom was corrupted by reason of their uh, their arrogance. But if if Pharisee helps you remember parad, then uh, that's the point of why I was telling you all that. All right. So P A R A D is the uh, is the Hebrew term, and uh, to divide, to separate. Usually, it's to separate only in the case of these rivers. Genesis two, you've got the rivers that divide, and so when when God is describing the uh, territory of the Garden of Eden, and He talks about these rivers, well, it starts as a single river that then divides, and that's Genesis two ten. A river flowed out of Eden. And so the source is within Eden, in that territory that the garden was planted in. And a river flowed from that territory to water the garden. And from there it divided and became four rivers. So remember, the garden was planted within the territory called Eden. The source was was uh, also in Eden flowed from the source to go, to water the garden, and then beyond the garden it divided. So from there, from the garden, it divided and became four rivers. So from the garden it paraded, it parad, paraded, okay? That's what it did. It separated and became four rivers. And the rivers, uh, two of them are pretty famous, um, and uh, whether they're the same as, as the Tigris and the Euphrates that we know about after the flood, we think all the geography changed with the flood anyway, so it's not likely that they were the same rivers. All right, so that's the idea. That's our first use, the idea of dividing. Okay, And you can divide for right reasons, and, and a division can be a good thing. Uh, but more often than not, a division is not a good thing if it's for the wrong reasons. And uh, that's uh, maybe the best application we can get out of all of these. Genesis chapter 10. So starting with the rivers, what do we notice about these rivers? They're forming boundaries. Boundaries are good. River boundaries are, are good because it's hard to move a river. And uh, if, 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 if we live on this side of the river and you live on that side of the river, great. We know who belongs where and who is who and what is what and things get simple. Chapter 10 then more division. And this is in God's design. Genesis 10, these are the records, the Toledoth of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The sons of Noah and sons are born to them after the flood. And so we start to get the divisions of humanity. And this is vital. This gets ignored. It's a lot of begats. It's a lot of names. Uh, Genesis 5 gets ignored. Genesis 10 gets ignored. But it is foundational. And I'm really, really eager if, uh, if in fact, we uh, wrap up Hebrews and then go to Genesis for our next Sunday morning series, 
understand we're going to learn some things here in Genesis 10. We're going to learn about the 70 divisions of humanity and the organization of the earth as God has structured it in, uh, in His plan for the ages. Alright, so uh, the sons of Japheth, starting in verse 2, Gomer and Magog and Madai and Javan and Tubal and Meshech and Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz and Riphath and Togarmah. The sons of Javan were Elishah and Tarshish, Kittim and Donanim. Alright, got all those? Now from these, <laughs> alright, from these, that's us by the way, most of us, the Japhetic is largely the Caucasian uh, descendants, but in any event, from these, the coastlands of the nations were, here it is, parad, separated. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands. And this is a separation in God's design. And we're going to learn more about it in chapter 11. Because there was a human effort to not separate. There was a human effort to defy the will of God. When he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, they said, we're not going to fill the earth, we're going to we're going to build a, a metropolis and we're going to concentrate the population right here with a tower that we can build to heaven. And God said, no you don't. He separates their languages and He separates the people. And uh, language is a big separator. So the coastlands were separated into their lands. Everyone according to his language, according to his fa- uh, their families, into their nations. And so there's a threefold classification for uh, these people groups that, that God Himself separated. And uh, so we recognize that there's lands, there's language, there's families, and the aggregate of those that, that share commonality form nations. And so that's what we deal with. And it comes up again throughout the Scriptures. It comes up again in uh, Revelation. The fact that the, the Jewish evangelists in the tribulation are bringing so many to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation is, is the fourfold description there. Foundational comes right here. So there are things that divide. Now, these things that divide, notice the things that divide also unify. Okay? And we want to keep that in mind when we ask ourselves, why are these self-imposed separators, why are they self-separating themselves in pursuing their own belly, in pursuing their own lust? Why are they, they should be a part of this community. They should be a part of this group that should be unified. So with the separation comes unity. And you'll notice, again, verse 5, the separation there is according to into their lands, there's locality, according to his language, there's communication. And so who are you designed to communicate with? Well, what land do you live in and what language do you speak? That's a clue. And then what family were you born into? Because we have families. And then a lot of this is lost in the modern world. A lot of this is lost in terms of families, clans, tribes, and uh, and that's that's a good thing for for some reasons, and it's actually a problematic thing for other reasons. So uh, stay tuned for teaching on that. <laughs> All right. But if you have a common language, what does that, that means you, you're able to communicate, you're expected to communicate, it's a good thing when you communicate, problems happen when you stop communicating. Am I talking about marriage here? Am I talking about... <laughs> I'm talking about families, I'm talking about churches, 
talking about politics. I'm talking about all of it. When you stop communicating, breakdown, fight, you know, difficulties. That's it. That's true in marriage, family, nations. And, and so when we share a language, use the language, communicate, speak. And then, of course, families. The, uh, what carries culture forward to the next generation. What, uh, what, what carries the, the values, what carries the, the, uh, the beliefs, what carries the, the, the traditions and the practices and the customs and, and everything else. That happens within families, or it's supposed to. And then the uh, collection of those families that are bound together uh, forming the national people groups. And the national people group serves the benefit to be able to relate to the neighboring national people groups. All right, That's how you have the, the, the foreign uh, affairs that are handled at the national level. That uh, not at the family level, not within marriage and so forth. So we have boundaries for a reason. Internally we handle things amongst ourselves with our language, with our families. Externally, nations have to interact with neighboring nations. And this is how God designed it. All right. That's verse uh, 5. Verse 32 of the same chapter. Uh, Once we get through, because the pattern is repeated after the Japheth, then we have the sons of Ham, then we have the sons of Shem. And at the end of the chapter, these are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations, and out of these the nations were separated on earth after the flood. So separation is God's design and this is how it works. And this is why the great battle of, in our day, and it's been the battle ever since, but the idea of globalism versus nationalism. And God's design is for nationalism. The promise is that globalism will occur when Jesus is seated on the throne of David but even that system of, of globalism, if you want to think of it, is not truly a globalism because there will be kings that will come and pay him tribute. He will be the king of kings. And th- those other kings still exist. And so the king of whatever country will have to come to Jerusalem in the millennium and worship every year in the Feast of Tabernacles. And he will have to pay tribute, will have to provide national funds to, to Jesus Christ as their tribute. And, but they're still kings. They're going to go back to their home nations. That's the design. Satan comes along and says, oh, no, no, no. We want to have a global government. We want to have United Nations. We want to have no boundaries, no borders. And we understand this is a fight that goes way back to the, to the uh, you know, earliest of times. And, and fundamentally, this is what it comes down to. And when people ask me, you know, uh, am, I, am I impressed by uh, Donald Trump's personal morality? Am I dazzled by his divorces? Am I thrilled with his womanizing? And, and all, of course not. All that's horrible. But when one party represents globalism and Donald Trump speaks up for nationalism, that's biblical. And to me, that's, I said, hey, I'm voting for that. I'm voting for America first because that's Genesis 10. That's Genesis 11. And, uh, and then I pray that Mike Pence can have a spiritual influence on uh, <laughs> that our vice president is a doctrinal believer with a squared away approach to, uh, to theology in, uh, in these things. Anyway, that's it for my politics this morning. <clears throat> but if I'm faced with 
Capitalism versus socialism? I'm sorry, capitalism's biblical and socialism's satanic. If I'm faced with nationalism versus uh, globalism, I'm sorry, nationalism is biblical and, and uh, globalism is satanic. If I'm faced with, uh, you know, heterosexual one man, one woman in marriage, that's biblical. The other thing is satanic. Everything else is satanic related to these things. That's Genesis chapter 10. Genesis chapter 13. Now it gets personal. And the word separate as it relates to Lot and Abraham here. Now the fact that Abraham, that that Lot was with Abraham all this time I think is problematic anyway. Because part of the covenant imperative is go forth. And when God first gave that covenant to Abraham in chapter 12, he said, go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. But he brought Lot with him. And uh, one of the questions I intend to ask when I get a chance to before the Lord is, was he wrong to take Lot with him? Was he, was he wrong? Because he was told to go forth from his land and from his relatives. Lot's a relative. Lot is a relative. Why did he take Lot? from your father's house to the land which I will show you. Now, um, my personal opinion is Abraham was wrong to take Lot. And if Lot, um, maybe, if Lot, we know he was saved, but he was not spiritually minded. And if, uh, if Lot wanted to maybe um, humble himself like Ruth, you know, your people will be my people. Uh, you know, if he, if Lot was to disavow uh, his former family connections, you know, it's curious to me why he took Lot and why this separation in chapter 13 is vital. He had to be separated and then the restatement of the covenant can be made and then the circumcision and then the birth of, of, of Isaac and, and all the rest. So, Stay tuned. I think uh, I want to teach this clearly when we get to our Genesis series at this point. Uh, It's also not clear if uh, more of Abraham's disobedience came if he was married to Sarah at the time. Um, If he arranged a quickie marriage with his half-sister, then uh, that could have also been an issue when he left Ur of the Chaldees. So, But all that's background uh, in chapter 12 before we get to chapter 13. In chapter 13 now we have issues. And Lot and his herdsmen and Abraham and his herdsmen and they're they're struggling here. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev and his wife and all that belonged to him and Lot with him. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold and he went on his journeys from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place of the altar which he had made there formerly. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. Now Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. Now notice, is Lot, Lot's not participating in the worship. He's not there with the altar. He's not participating. But he's, he's there uh, in secular life. He's there in temporal life. And... Um, He also had flocks and herds and tents. And the land could not sustain them while dwelling together for their possessions were so great that they were not able to remain together. And that's an issue. 
The use of land resources is an issue and people will fight over it. Wars will happen because of natural resources and land use disagreements. So there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. Now the Canaanite and the Perizzite were dwelling then in the land. So that's other considerations as well. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers, kinsmen, uncle and nephew, as the case may be. And, uh, and, but the principle is clear. Because of the family bonds, when there are temporal conflicts, that's not good. And you want to resolve it within family before it spills over into you know, before the Canaanites and the Perizzites get involved, before it blows up and now you've got a, a uh, political issue that should be handled within the family. Is not the whole land before you, please separate from me. And this is the verb parad. Separate from me. If to the left, then I will go to the right, or if to the right, then I will go to the left. And I think this is, uh, this is wisdom on on uh, Abraham's part. It uh, is going to expose Lot very quickly for what his priorities are and what he thinks is the best choice to make here. But it's grace on Abraham's part saying, you get first choice and I'll take what you don't take. And uh, which is really a faith expression because Abraham had a whole lot more than Lot had. But there you have it. And um, so we see what happens here. So Lot lifted up his eyes and he saw all the valley of the Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere. This, of course, was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the gardens of the Lord, and uh, like the land of Egypt as you go towards Zoar. So Lot chose for himself all the valley of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward. Thus they separated from each other. All right, notice Cain went eastward, Lot goes eastward. What's happening here? But he's looking at the land, and he sees the water, and for the water reason, he likes it. The fact that Sodom and Gomorrah are there, eh, okay. <laughs> it doesn't stop Lot, doesn't slow him down. He says, yeah, but look at that water. Yeah, but it's Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah, but look at that water. You know, and, and why do you make the choices you make? And here's a city that God's going to destroy very quickly. Yeah, but look at that water. All right, well, so we have verse 9, we have verse 11. They separated from each other. And uh, so he moved to Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked exceedingly and sinners against the Lord. So the Lord said to Abraham, after Lot had separated from him. Now this is key. Because the, the covenant had already been stated once. But the Lord was waiting for this separation. Now he can give the covenant again. He said, now lift up your eyes and look. From the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, westward, for all the land which you see, I will give it to you and to your descendants forever. And that separation, is that moment after Lot separates, it's like that moment when Judas Iscariot walks out and the Lord says, now is the Son of Man glorified. These are pivotal moments that you can look back to and say, that separation needed to happen. And so it's interesting. All right, so we have the verses there. Chapter 25. 
or separation. Twins in a womb. What could be closer than twins? Well, they're going to get separated. So uh, verse 19 says, these are the records, these are the Toledoth of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethel, of Aramean, uh, the Aramean of Pedanaram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And uh, again, that's family, clan, tribes. These are the issues that um, we're going to have to study to, to make our own application on. So Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was barren and the Lord answered him and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The test that Abraham faced, Isaac had to face and he had to learn. And uh, thankfully he made it a prayer item. He had victory. He didn't go the Hagar route and say, well, let me, let me try to have a baby with his handmaiden. He didn't fail like Abraham failed in that regard. And uh, he waited until such time as Rebekah conceived. But the children struggled together within her and she said, if it is so, then why... Am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord. She didn't have sonograms back then and didn't, couldn't <laughs> find out, oh, there's two of them in there and they're fighting a lot. So the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. <laughs> well, that gets crowded. All right. Two baby boys, but from those boys are going to come nations. Two peoples will be separated from your body. Now, if they're brothers, shouldn't they be the same people? They speak the same language, they live in the same land, they have the same, they're from the same family. They would, they would have cousins and, 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 and extended clan uh, uh, relationships. They, they, they should be from the same people. But when does a people become a new people? When do two brothers become Israel and Edom? Say, brothers can become new people groups because God's in charge of when a new people group forms. When do, uh, when do, um, well, in 1776, uh, some British citizens became American citizens. When does a new people group form? See, we keep it biblical and we keep things straight. So uh, two peoples are in, will be separated from your body. And one people shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. And this is in God's design. Remember uh, Acts 17, God's in charge of all of this. God is absolutely in charge of all of this. When a family becomes a people. Okay. Interesting. All right. Deuteronomy 32. There's a manuscript question here. We can solve it. It's not a terrible mystery, but it is debated. All right, the Song of Moses. He's brought Israel out of Egypt. He's been with them for 40 years in the wilderness. That generation has died. The next generation is getting ready to go in. Moses won't be allowed to go in, but Moses will be teaching them the doctrine they need for when they go in. And he gets presented here. And he sings this song. And um, 
Give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain. My speech distill as the dew and the droplets on the fresh grass as the showers of the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. This is how his song begins. The rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. So that's the God who's redeemed you. That's the God that you serve. That's how your nation needs to run. That's what your politics have to be like. Righteousness and justice, faithfulness. But they have acted corruptly towards him. They are not his children because of their defect. They are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is not he your father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. So since he's your God, this is how you should live. And since you're not living that way, we've got a problem. (laughs) Okay? We need to repent. We need to remember. So remember the days of old. That's verse 7. Consider the years of all generations. Ask your father, he will inform you. Your elders, and they will tell you. And so there are elements that have to be passed down from generation to generation to generation of the truth of who God is. That's a purpose for why we have a nation. Generations can pass on to the next generation spiritual values from the Word of God. Now verse 8 says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance. Plural. Israel's not the only nation that has an inheritance. They've got the greatest inheritance. They've got their land grant. They've got their eternal blessings. They've got the uh, covenant promises of the coming Messiah. They've got covenant promises uh, as it pertains to the fact that of all the nations of this earth, it's going to be the Jewish nation that Yahweh will reside in, that he will be born of the Jewish people, that he will live among them. There's no Gentile nation that can claim that. But Gentile nations will have their own Gentile inheritance as God designs it. When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when He separated the sons of man, He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number, and here's where the manuscript question comes in. So every nation has their boundaries. That's why Genesis 10 is vital. When you study Genesis 10, you got three broad divisions of Ham, Shem, and Japheth. You have three broad uh, divisions of humanity around the globe. But those three broad divisions are furthermore subdivided into 70 subdivisions. And it's those 70 boundaries. He separated the sons of man. He set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the... And here's where the manuscript question is. I think it should be the number of the sons of God, the B'nai Ha'elohim, as opposed to the B'nai Ha'Yisrael. And the manuscripts have been corrupted, and I believe the Jews changed the manuscripts in the first century because the Septuagint and the uh, Samaritan Pentateuch and other translations reflect the sons of God language because we know there's a dynamic between the angelic realm and the human realm that angels are assigned to watch the human nations, and report back to God. Whether you accept it as sons of God or sons of Israel, um, you can connect this in different ways. Israel had 12 tribes. 
those 12 tribes were furthermore broken up into clans and the divisions then ended up being 70. There were 70 divisions when Moses appointed 70 elders to help him administer the nation of Israel. Uh, the 12 tribes had a total of 70 clans within those 12 tribes as the divisions of Israel. And so on that basis then, I think that the rabbis changed the language here from B'nai Ha'elohim, sons of God, to B'nai Yisrael, sons of Israel. Because there's 70 nations of the Gentiles in Genesis 10, and there's 70 divisions of, of Israel uh, in, uh, in Deuteronomy. In any event, that's not the point. We can ignore that today. The point is, though, is that the Gentile nations are divided. And they're divided according to a standard. And they're divided in the will of God. They're separated. And that He has established their boundaries for a reason. And so the boundaries serve to divide, but the boundaries also serve to unify within, within those boundaries. So there should be unity within every country. And that unity comes about in language and family. But the, the, the boundary also serves to divide the neighboring people groups, right? The neighboring people groups. Real quick, before uh, I grab the rest of this, because I'm going to forget if I don't, just remind yourself of Acts 17 and the, uh, the marvelous testimony to God's sovereignty and His glorious plan when Paul is preaching to the uh, uh, people of Athens there on Mars Hill. Acts 17.26 says, He made from one every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. So every nation all descends from Adam. Every nation. This is, that's why racism is unbiblical. We're all either in Adam or in Christ. And, and every nation on the face of this earth descends from, uh, they're all, we're all human, descended from Adam. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. That's God's sovereignty. His eternal plan set it forth their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. So when we see history unfold, why does a nation rise? Why does a nation fall? Why, was, uh, why did 13 British colonies birth a new nation? God did that. According to this verse, God did that. That there's no authority except from God, and those that exist are ordained by God. And so... Uh, their appointed times, that would be the time of their beginning and the time of their conclusion, as well as the boundaries of their habitation. Sometimes boundaries are expanded for blessing, and sometimes boundaries are contracted for cursing. And sometimes the boundaries are removed altogether, because there are people groups that don't have boundaries, people groups that no longer have lands, that no longer have borders. They exist as a remnant within a, a different uh, people group for example. There are still Assyrians in the world today. That is, people with ethnic Assyrian descent. But there is no land of Assyria anymore there that has you know, boundaries and they don't speak the Assyrian language and the, that, that, uh, or Babylonians or and you know what I'm saying? That there are Assyrian people. It's like there are, there are still Cherokee people. But the Cherokee nation is no longer a sovereign nation. 
So they are a people group. They identify by language and family, but they don't have territory in terms of defendable borders and sovereignty. That's times and borders that God speaks of here in Acts 17. All right. And it's a miracle, of course, that the Jewish people group were restored to their promised land in 1948. And uh, that's a testimony to uh, no matter where they went in the diaspora, uh, no matter where they went from Siberia to Timbuktu, okay, Jewish people knew that they were a people group and they belonged to a land they weren't living in. And they, uh, that's why the whole Zionist movement was to return to the land that God had promised to them. The United States of America has no such covenant promises. <laughs> okay? And uh, we are so lost from Bible times we could be destroyed tomorrow and there are no covenant promises that guarantee that the American people group are, uh, are entitled to, uh, to this territory for any length of time. It's only by the grace of God that we're here now. These things, I think, are foundational. That's why we have them here in Genesis and in Deuteronomy, in the, in the, in the Torah. A couple of other verses. I think you'll like these. Second Samuel chapter 1. And uh, as David is now singing a song... He learns about the death of Saul and Jonathan, and he's grieving. And uh, he says, Saul and Jonathan, beloved and pleasant in their life, and in their death they were not parad, they were not separated, parted, divided. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan is slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. You've been very pleasant to me. Your love to me was more wonderful than the love of women. How have the mighty fallen and the weapons of war perished? So here in his uh, lament for Saul and Jonathan, father and son, they were not separated in death. Not separated in death. There's a testimony, by the way. People that try to convince me that Saul was an unbeliever, I point to that verse and say, are you kidding me? That would have been an eternal separation of Saul and Jonathan, and they were not separated in death. Second uh, Kings 2.11. I forget which one this one is. Second Kings 2.11. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is Elijah and Elisha. And uh, as they were going along and talking, behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire, which separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind to heaven. And so, yeah, here's a separation, and it has to happen. Elijah's departing. Elisha's taking over. He gets a double portion of Elijah's spirit. He's going to have twice the impact Elijah had in his generation. And uh, the separation there. Esther 3.8. Haman said to the king, Ahasuerus, and this is a wicked Haman who wants to kill all these Jews, there is a certain people scattered and dispersed among the peoples 
in all the provinces of your kingdom. This is the diaspora. This is the scattering of the Jewish people. Remember Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem and even before that the Assyrians had taken away the ten northern tribes and then the Babylonians came and took away the southern two tribes and the remnant of the other ten tribes. And and so here there are Jewish people in every province of Persia. They are separated and they are dispersed. Their laws are different from those of other people. In other words, they still identify as a separate people. And um, they do not observe the king's laws. That's, tech, that's not true. He's lying. They do observe the king's laws and, until the king's laws disagree with God's laws. And then they obey God's laws. Like the fiery furnace and the lion's den and the, the circumstances there. So it is not in the king's interest to let them remain. If it is pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that we commit genocide. And we're going to destroy this entire people group. We're going to kill a genos. A genos is a kind or a, a uh, people group. And so if you murder a genos, that is genocide. And um, I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who carry out the king's business to put into the king's treasuries. And so he's going to underwrite it. He's going to pay for the massacre and he's going to reward the, uh, the government uh, uh, treasury. If, uh, if only uh, Xerxes here gives the command to exterminate the Jewish people. So the king uh, takes off his signet ring from his hand, he gives it to Haman and uh, the law goes into effect. Haman pays him the, the silver, and out they go. All right, well, this is why I'm out of time. We'll pick up here next week. So there's uh, good separations, there's bad separations. And what Proverbs 18 is talking about is a bad separation because the community of wisdom is who you should be living with, you should be growing with. And uh, the fact that you're departing from the community of wisdom, um, to go out and be your own lone ranger, is, uh, is not good. And that's not how God designed you to be in your Christian walk. Thank you, Father, for this day. Thank you for this study. Help us to have a, a better understanding of all these principles, personally, maritally, family, nationally, and all the, internationally, in all, these, in all these ways, Father. Show us what the right separations are and what the wrong separations are. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.